So we are in Genesis 23 today. Uh, a while ago I had a conversation with Brother Chuck and I was milking the fact that I stopped uh, for him to have Genesis 22, which is perhaps one of the best, coolest chapters in the whole Bible, and like real easy, wasn't it? It was like real easy. And then I was lamenting the fact that I, now I'm stuck with Genesis 23. What am I going to say? It's about a guy who buries his wife. I mean, wh- what are we going to get out of Genesis 23? And I was lamenting and telling Brother Chuck that. And he said, no, you'll probably find a way to talk about Israel. <laughs> and for the first time ever, Brother Chuck is right. <laughs> it's like all over this chapter. Some of us are leaving tomorrow for Israel and would surely appreciate your prayers. We leave from the cross at 4.30 uh, in the morning and make our way to the airport and uh, then to the East Coast from this airport and then all the way over to Tel Aviv. And uh, we try to get on Israel time real quick, which is a bit of a challenge because of the time difference. And then we hit it running as soon as we get there and We have a wonderful itinerary and good things lined up, but they all have to be held with an open hand because of circumstances, not just in Israel, but all over. And so uh, we think this is great timing for a group of believers to go to that place in light of events that have recently transpired. So we surely would appreciate uh, you praying for us. Amy's colleague, Rhonda, is going, our children's minister, Rhonda Black, and her daughter, uh, two of my sons, one of my daughters-in-law, um, the Joneses, some of the Joneses are going, the Steve is going. Who else is here who's going with us tomorrow? There's Scott right there, Scott. Lisa's not here? I don't see her. Oh, good. Oh, she's doing, me- oh, I gotcha, I gotcha. I thought you guys had a fight or something. Because we want you to get that out of your system here. They got enough trouble in Israel. <laughs> so we have a wonderful group of folks and uh, surely would appreciate your prayers. So here we are. Genesis chapter 23. Are you ready? Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. To my knowledge, Sarah is the only woman in the entire Bible whose age at her death is recorded. I have no idea what the significance of that is, but I think it's factual. I do not recall reading anywhere else in the Bible, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I, it would be for the first time. I think Sarah's the only lady in the entire Bible whose span uh, of life is recorded. 127. At this point, um, her son, Isaac, is about 37. So when she dies, he's uh, an adult. And she got a wonderful chance to enjoy, uh, experience life with this child of promise. She had flaws, did she not? She was not a perfect person. And yet God called her princess. Isn't that interesting? Genesis 17:15. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai... That was her name, Sarai, your wife. You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah, Sarah shall be her name. Sarah means princess. God mandated that she be named princess. 
Not only that, though she had plenty of flaws and imperfections, as do we, she made the cut. Her name is found in what we call the faith honor roll, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Gives me hope, hope it gives you hope. Do you know God doesn't expect us to be sinlessly perfect yet? <laughs> and he's very merciful and gracious to us. We have a place in his kingdom, in his service, even with our flaws and imperfections, as did Sarah. So she died, according to verse 2, in a place called Kiryat Arba. And then we have an explanatory note. That is Hebron. Do you have that in your Bible? That's what it should be. That is Hebron. Kiryat means village or city. Kiryat Arba. Uh, Arba was a man, a tribal leader who settled in this area. So this would be village or city of Arba. Um, but Arba is also the Hebrew word for four, the numeral four. So this is the city of four. What does that mean? Uh, some uh, speculate that there might have been four municipalities under this umbrella. So it's either named after a person or the fact that there were four villages. Kiryat, city or village. Uh, when we go to Israel, Lord willing, we'll be going to a place called Kiryat Shmona, village Shmona, Shmona. It's right on the Lebanese border. And there we have an opportunity to visit a very orthodox Jewish family and maybe even go into their local uh, synagogue right on the Lebanese border, Kiryat Shmona. So the terminology is still used today. Kiryat uh, Arba was the ancient name for what we now call Hebron. Hebron exists today, 23 miles south of Jerusalem. It's largely under uh, Palestinian Muslim uh, control today. You can go to Hebron. Uh, we generally do not. It's a bit of a hot spot, but um, you can go there. Uh, it, it, the point is it exists today, 23 miles from Jerusalem. And uh, so she was buried there, notice, in the land of Canaan. Land of Canaan. So that's the original name for Israel or the promised land. The name Palestine uh, is much, much later, much, much later. It's called the land of Canaan um, because Canaanites were the people group who dwelled in the land. So please keep in mind that phrase, land of Canaan, you'll see it repeated again once or twice more in this chapter, and I, I, it's significant. You'll see why in just a second. Anyway, she was buried there, Kiryat Arba, in the land of Canaan. Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. I suppose he had a lack of faith at the time, huh? All this crybaby stuff. All this mourning, all this grieving. I wish we were there so we could have told him, stop crying. Wish he was there so we could have said, get over it, don't you believe God? I wish we, he was there so we could have said to him, how long are you going to do this? Shouldn't your grieving period be over? Enough is enough. Do you know those are things sometimes grieving people hear? Oh, but I hope it never happens here. Those are not the things to say. Do you know God gave us the ability to cry? Make use of it. He gave us the ability to weep. In English, it doesn't come through quite as intensely as it does in Hebrew. He was shrieking loudly. He was not proper about his grieving and mourning. 
He was not dignified. He withheld nothing. It was all over the place. If you've seen people in the Middle East grieving, they do it in the same way today. They beat their breasts. They fall almost faint. And they feel better after. There's a cathartic release. And so God wants us to have the permission to get it out in acceptable ways. So we never, ever, ever, ever want to put a lid on someone's grieving, do we? We never want to do that. Um, We never want to say, aren't you over this yet? Oh, my goodness. People have a right to grieve according to their individual time schedules. And what happens if you are grieving but don't feel the permission uh, to be honest about it? Those feelings, they don't go away. They just get buried underground in you. They get buried on the inside. See, if you don't feel the permission to express grief, by the way, what are acceptable ways to express it? One is to pray it out to God. One is to pour out your heart. Oh, God, I ache. Oh, God, I'm alone. Oh, God, I'm afraid. Oh, God, why? Oh, God, if you're good, why? Do you know those are acceptable things? So you can pray out your grief. Some people write out their grief. This wouldn't work for me because I, I, I'm not a writer, but some, it's very, very helpful uh, to, to write out your thoughts. It could be a letter to God. It could be, do you know it could be a letter to your loved one who's not with you now? In it, you could express what you want to. I love you. I miss you. You could do that. And then what I usually, and sometimes I invite people to do is to take that letter that you just wrote and kind of tear it up in small pieces and kind of spread them out on maybe your living room floor and just walk ab- above them and say, oh, God, thank you in advance that by your grace you're going to help me to overcome. You could do that. So you can pray out your grief. You can write out your grief. You can talk out your grief, but only to safe people. So some people even here will say to you, how are you doing? If you discern they're not safe, just say, fine. But if you feel they're safe, tell them the truth. It's not so fine. Tell them I'm struggling. Tell them moment by moment, my answer will be different. Tell them I'm numb. Tell them I could really use you praying for me. And one of the best things to do with a grieving person, if you want to help them, is word, look, and a touch. (laughs) And one of the words, uh, phrases I use a lot with grieving people is simply to say, I put my arm on them, and you be careful, watch the hugging. I I do the open hand, non-frontal hug, this kind of deal. Uh, um, And I usually say, wow, you're really going through a lot. That's all I say. You're really going through a lot. Because I'll tell you what that does. I just gave them permission. I just validated their right to go through a lot. I labeled for them what they're going through. You are really going through a lot. I did not preach to them. I did not share Romans 8.28. I didn't do anything. I just permitted them to be going through a lot. Now, here's the deal. If people don't feel the permission to freely grieve, their grieving will be elongated. It's interesting. If you're not getting the emotions out through crying in other ways, 
uh, the process of grief is elongated. Because as I mentioned, those feelings do not dissipate. They get buried underground. They can come out. Do you know in physical ways? You could have migraine headaches. I didn't say all migraines are due to this. I'm just telling you. Emotions are very interesting things. You could have heart palpitations. You could have anxiety attacks. You could have numbness in the extremities. You could have insomnia. If the emotions are not expressed in some of the ways I told you, they will express themselves in other ways. So you you don't ever want to stifle someone's grieving. Um, And I hope you're not one of these people who thinks crying is a sign of weakness. What? By the way, God who gave us emotions gave them to us as a package. So here's an interesting thing. If you want to experience the emotion of joy, you also have to permit the emotion of loss and grief. Why is that? Because you can't choose which ones you want to have and which ones you don't. It's a package deal. So if you stifle the emotion of sadness or loss or grief, if you, if you bury those alive, you're not going to have joy either. It has to be emotional expression without discrimination. You see, that's just the way they work. They're tricky things. Let them run their course. You know what happens? You never get over the loss of a loved one, do you? Of course not. But the intensity of the grief subsides. This is reported to me by those who've gone through the grief process. It doesn't mean things can't well up again, but generally there's a pattern over time where the intensity of the grief becomes more manageable. Does it go away? I didn't say that. You would have to forget the one you miss. How do you forget the one you miss? So no, no, that is not the goal uh, for all this to go away. The goal is for, for it to be manageable and for you to be able to press on. And that happens through the grieving process. So I hope we permit one another to be emotional around here, particularly at a time of grief and loss. I'm so glad that the patriarch of our faith, Abraham, mourned and wept quite openly. I'm sure he didn't see this to be a lack of faith. By the way, there's a difference between a crisis of emotion and a crisis of faith. I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating In other words, you could be someone who's just lost a loved one and your faith is fully intact. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know he what he did for you. You're going to see him face to face. The Bible is the word of God. You know about all this stuff. Your faith is fully intact. You're not having a crisis of doctrine or belief or faith. You're having a crisis of emotion. So woe be it from those of us to preach out at you about your faith. It's a crisis of emotion. Would you say to Abraham, Abraham, you're having a crisis of faith? Don't you trust God? We would never say that. He's not having a crisis of faith, but he's having a crisis of emotion. You see, there's a difference. So we're, we quickly move into preaching gear, and I'll tell you why, when someone is grieving. I'll tell you why we do it. We are uncomfortable with someone else's discomfort. Therefore, we try to move them out of their discomfort as quickly as possible. We actually... Do it for us, not for them. We want them to dry their tears. We want to tell them jokes. We want them to laugh. We want them to go bowling. (laughs) 
We want them to act like nothing ever happened. We think we're doing it for them, but we're doing it for us because we're uncomfortable in the presence of someone who's uncomfortable. I used to counsel people, and uh, if someone was grieving or weeping in my presence, I would never offer them uh, Kleenex. Isn't that a weird thing? Because I didn't want it to imply, I want you to stop crying. Let it go. You know, just fluids from every opening. We'll clean it up later. I didn't want, no, no, no. Because it's cathartic, cathartic. Those of you who have gone through this, at the end you usually go like this. And you have a measure of composure until the next time. Don't be afraid of the next time. But that's how God provides for you to get to the next time. But if folks like us force your feelings underground, put on a happy face, you know what I mean? Oh, my goodness. Then it will prolong your grieving period. All right. So Abraham, I'm really thrilled, showed us quite an example of how to deal with things. By the way, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and he never told them not to cry. He just said, you know what? You can experience sorrow, but not as ones without hope. This is what he said in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That's a euphemism for those who passed away in Christ before us, asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Paul didn't say they shouldn't grieve. He just said, I don't want you to grieve like those who don't know the God of hope. I want you to know, even in the midst of your grief, as Jesus was the first fruits of life from death, so to your loved one, if he or she knew Christ, follows him in life after death. And so too will you be reunited with your loved one one day. So Paul says, you can grieve, you can be sorrow, but not as ones without hope. Have you ever seen someone grieving hopelessly? It's despair and darkness, the likes of which some people can't get out of. Some people think the only alternative, it's so dark, uh, the only alternative is to take their lives. That's not us. Hurt, grieve, but not as ones without hope. Hope. Death does not have the last word. Jesus does. He has the last word. He says, where I am, you shall be with me. You see what I mean? And I love this euphemism. Don't worry about those who have fallen asleep. See, sleeping is temporary, as uh, some of you are experiencing right now. Um, <laughs> it's just temporary because you've got to wake up when we're done. But that's the euphemism. But the believer falls asleep. You wake up from it. The one you love, who has known the Lord Jesus, woke up from death and is very much alive and in the presence of the Lord. Is that wishful thinking? No, that's Bible thinking. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You see, That's what Paul says. Here's your hope. Don't grieve. Grieve, but not as ones with, with no hope. Abraham had hope. By the way, this is the first record in Genesis of tears being shed. Doesn't mean they weren't, but this is the first recorded incident in Genesis of someone crying. Tears began in Genesis. Do you know they will continue until the book of Revelation? Revelation 21, verse 4, and he will wipe away, God will, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things, the things of this life, will have passed away.
So between the tears of Genesis and the drying up of tears in Revelation, we find ourselves. Therefore, we cry. It started in Genesis. It won't get finished till Revelation. Cry. God gave us the permission to cry. Have a good cry. We feel better when we do. And one day, he shall wipe away every tear from our eyes. But not yet. So verse 3. Abraham rose from before his dead. Yeah, you see, that's the other thing. There comes a time when a grieving one is going to find the strength to carry on, to get up and live life. It's not so easy. But the strength comes in due season to get up and carry on. Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth. The sons of Heth were residents in this area Hebron is what we're talking about now. Later, they'll be referred to as the Hittites. He spoke to them saying, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Interesting. The first recorded burial in the Bible is what we're going to read about here. It's about Sarah. That's the first time. It's not that people weren't buried, but this is the first record of it makes me think why it was so important for Abraham to take pains to secure a burial spite. The only record we have of Abraham purchasing any piece of real estate in the promised land was this, a burial site. Why was this so important? And why did he want to bury Sarah here in the land of Canaan? He's from War of the Chaldees and stopped off in a place called Haran, Haran. In that day, the custom was for a deceased person's bones to be carried back to their native land. It's not this. He says he's a sojourner in this land. So why is he so insistent on obtaining a burial place for his wife here in this land? In fact, at the end of Genesis 22, you will recall, he got an, uh, some information from his family who were... It, Back home, Genesis 22, verse 20. It came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Hey, Abraham, we got good news. Your uh, brother's wife, uh, you know, she was pregnant. She had children. Uh, you're like an uncle. These are your brother's kids. You know, you get notes like that when you're away from home it conjures up a, a, even more of a longing to be home. So this would have been an opportune time for Abraham to say, Sarah, my wife, died. I will gather her bones and take her back to Haran, and I will bury her there. But no, 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 he's insistent on uh, her being buried here in the land of Canaan, uh, a- ancient Israel. But it's not just Abraham who did this. Remember a guy named Jacob? It goes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We will read about him in Genesis chapter 49 if we ever get there. I don't think we will, by the way. I'm pretty certain. There's just no way. We're in chapter 23. Do you have that much faith? Chapter 49? We're not gonna, I mean, the rapture is going to come. And the, hey, but don't worry, because Brother Chuck can then teach. Oh, <laughs> I'll I saved these things for a while he's here. And he does the same. Do you think he's taking notes on the lesson? Oh, no. 
<laughs> He's doing what I do. I could get him by saying this. Anyway, Genesis 49, verse 28. Let me read you about Jacob. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He, it's Jacob, blessed them, everyone with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. That's exactly what we're reading about in Genesis 23. That's the location. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field in the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. Why was Jacob? He's in Egypt. Remember, he went down to Egypt. He's die- he dies in Egypt. What's the big deal? Bury him in Egypt. Oh, no. This is a big deal. He's blessing all the kids, 12 of them. He's laying their hands on them and all the rest. He says, I got one thing. This is important. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Another euphemism for I'm going to die. Make sure you carry my bones back up to the land of Canaan. So like Abraham, he too insists on being buried there in the land. Not just him, Joseph. Remember Joseph? He was betrayed by his brothers and sold into bondage and all that stuff. Of him it says in Genesis 50 verse 24 and on, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph insisted on being buried there. Sarah was buried there. Rebecca was buried there. Leah, their wives, were buried there. Why? Why is it so important? Well, hang in there before we finish our lesson today. Um, I think you'll see why. Right now, note, wow, he's really taking pains to obtain this burial site. Now, what's interesting is that Abraham really has uh, ownership of the whole land, doesn't he? I mean, in Genesis chapter 12, God gave the promise of the land to Abraham and his descendants, and he reconfirmed it in many, many places. But you will see Abraham go through all kinds of gyrations to purchase a small piece of land in which to bury his wife. You'll see he pays quite a price for it and all the rest. And you might say, why are you doing this? Just take it. God gave you the title deed to the land, did he not? Yeah, but that surely was not recognized by Abraham's neighbors. And by the way, nothing has changed down to this very day. Hence, Israel has engaged, in my opinion, in a very uh, foolish uh, peacemaking effort called Land for Peace. This very Hebron, which we're reading about, was given by Israel to the Palestinians. Bethlehem was given by Israel to the Palestinians. Jericho was given by Israel to the Palestinians. Massive areas in what's called the West Bank, which is ancient Judea and Samaria, was given by Israel to the Palestinians uh, under the guise of land for peace. And you might say, Israel, I mean, you have the title deed to the land. Why are you giving it away? Because even though that's a reality uh, from a divine point of view, from an international point of view, there's no way Israel could do that. There's enormous pressure put on Israel to do everything possible to make peace with its neighbors 
by giving away land that, that God gave them. So even back in Abraham's time, yeah, you can't just take, I mean, you gotta try to get along with your neighbors for crying out loud. So he's not asserting his rights, he's just trying to make peace with this character, with the, with the sons of Heth. And so it says in verse 5, uh, the sons of Heth answered Abraham and they said, hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. They thought well of him. Mighty prince could mean, in Hebrew, uh, prince of the Lord. He had a good testimony amongst these people. They were idolaters. They did not believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. But they saw something in Abraham's life that was respectable and admirable. That's the first step. By the way, those are the kinds of lives we have to live, folks. People have just got to see the transforming work Jesus has done in our life so that they're attracted, so that they want to know more. Doesn't the Bible say somewhere, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you? That implies people are going to ask us questions. What makes you tick? And once they ask a question like that, then you get to share how Jesus has changed your life. Folks, there's something which we need to do, and that is declare Christ to people. You cannot be saved apart from hearing and believing in the gospel. We call that evangelism or missions or soul winning, however you want to call it. The gospel must be declared. But as much as we need to declare truth, I think we have to demonstrate truth. Because if we're not demonstrating truth, we are invalidating our declaration of truth. If I say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but I'm not living in a way that's pleasing to him, I just invalidated what I declared. You know what I mean? In the world today, I don't know if you knew this, we don't have good standing as believers. I don't know if you knew that. Things have really changed. Uh, People don't think highly of us. Now, some of that is our own fault. Uh, Publicized affairs, embezzlement, crazy Crazy, crazy stuff that should not be found amongst Christians, let alone Christian clergy. But it is. Um, issues that make us like everybody else. And so we're not as a, they're not calling us prince or princesses of the Lord. <laughs> they're calling us all kinds of other things. We don't have a, a real attractive persona in the world today. Pray, pray that we who are inhabited by Almighty God would make himself more attractive through us as we obey him more. In Israel, our approach is declaration, but more demonstration, because everyone in Israel has already had truth declared to them in one way or another. Did you know that? Every Arab and Jew has heard of Jesus. (laughs) But they very few have gotten close to people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. We'll be on a boat, Lord willing, and the boat captain one time said in his own mind he made a distinction between ones he called Christians and those he called true born-again ones. He said, I don't know if that was the right vocabulary, but I had to see a difference. Some simply called themselves Christians. They were religious and all the rest, but there was nothing attractive about their lives. But others, he said, groups like yours were different. I saw how you prayed 
I, I, I saw uh, your gentleness and kindness. I saw how you respected the Bible. And I came to a point, said he, where I wanted your God. And he accepted the Lord. His name is Daniel Carmel. Now he's a boat captain on the Sea of Galilee. He leads worship on the very body of water in which his Messiah walked 2,000 years ago. It took years for Daniel Carmel to accept the Lord. He didn't lack for a declaration, but he had no interest in embracing it until he found people who could really demonstrate a changed life. We're very quick to declare. We're a little slower on the draw of demonstrating what Jesus has done for us. I think we should see evangelism as a process, not an event. Evangelism is event. Here's the gospel, take it or leave it. Well, I'll tell you what the world is doing. They're leaving it. But if you think of evangelism as a process of relationship development, living the life in front of a person, giving a word, a look and a touch, letting the Lord Jesus be real in your life, well, then, then we might have lives that demand a question and they might say, what makes you tick? What is, what, what is, what is going on with you? I think that should be the approach today, not just in the Middle East, but even in Texas. They really, people really need to see the change Jesus has made, made in our lives. So Abraham did well. They called him mighty prince, a prince, a prince with God. In verse seven, Abraham rose. Bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. He spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me. Like today, he's orchestrating a business transaction through an intermediary. Ephron was a big shot landowner, apparently. Uh, Abram is engaging the services of the people to, on his behalf, approach this fellow who owned the land in which Abram wants to bury his wife. That's kind of what what he does here. So verse 9, approach him that he may give me the cave of Machpelah. Machpelah means two or double because there were actually two caves. In fact, if you go to Hebron today, there's those two caves are still there. So we can't be entirely certain which is the one in which all these people were buried. There are two caves. And interestingly, the archaeologists are limited in doing their investigation. You know why? What do you say, bro? Guys with machine guns is close, and also the Muslims put a mosque on this site. You say, well, why does Israel let people? What do you? It's a democracy. It's a democracy. There are mosques, there are churches. It's a democracy. Which is why when people around the world put uh, Israel against the wall and argue what's called moral equivalence, nobody's right, nobody's wrong, they just can't get along. Could you please show me one Muslim-dominated country in the world that will allow a synagogue to be constructed? Show me one. Even Saudi Arabia, our so-called ally, allows no churches. Did you know that? But in Israel, there's a mosque on every corner. There's a church on every other corner. Everything imaginable. The Catholic Church seems to own half of Israel. It's quite amazing. And the rest is owned by Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Coptic. The Baha'i cult 
even has a temple in Haifa, a massive temple in the heart of uh, Haifa. The Mormons have schools there. I mean, it's democracy, democracy. So when our government doesn't support the only true democracy in the Middle East, our government is inviting ISIS over here because Israel's the buffer, folks, between those creeps and us. If Israel is not supplied, I mean, they're in Syria. ISIS is in Syria. I mean, that's, that's on the Israeli border. You know, before they get to Pearland, Texas, I'd rather have the Israelis cut them off. But if we cut off Israel, all right. So anyway, uh, you can't even dig there today. That's the way it is. So anyway, verse 9, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of the field. This is what Abram wants. For the full price. What a non-Jewish thing going on here. <laughs> I mean the full price. Nobody pays full price. But no one, I'm say, the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. He wants everything above board. He wants, he doesn't want a private smoky room transaction. He doesn't want a special deal. Hey, can't you give me a special deal? No one will know. Can't you cut corners? No. In front of all the sons of Heth, I'm going to give you a full bribe. Folks, this is how we Christians ought to conduct ourselves, particularly in the area of our finances. No closed door meetings, no private stuff, no hush money, none of come on. That's not the way we should that's not the way we should conduct ourselves. So anyway, that's what he says in verse nine. Verse ten, Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth. And Ephron the Hittite, see it says Hittite, sons of Heth were Hittites. Some say the Bible is inaccurate because the Hittites were a big people group that came from Turkey much later. Yeah, but those critics don't know what they're talking about. First of all, there were numbers of different Hittite groups. They're not all from Turkey. Second, they came in waves. The main body came later from Turkey, but a bunch of Hittites snuck into the place long before. Why is that such a stretch? for our reasoning capacity. Anyway, they're Hittites. So he's sitting amongst them, Ephron, he's a Hittite. He answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of the city. Gate. That's not like a wrought iron, merely entranceway, recessed area with benches. That was city hall. The gate is city hall. That's where they conducted business and civic affairs. The big shots, men only, would be there. Sign contracts, make deals, shake hands, stuff like that. That's the gates. You can go to the Middle East today and see these recessed uh, gates, just quite deep, uh, large, uh, significant place. That's where business was done. Anyway, uh, he says in verse 11, Ephron says to Abraham, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field. Well, Abraham didn't ask for the field. He asked for a cave in the field. He only wants the cave. Ephron says, but I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now, doesn't that look generous? It's not. We have records of ancient Hittite documents recording the customs of their business transactions. Here's what happened. <laughs> if Ephron only gives Abram, Abraham the cave, he, according to Hittite law, has to continue paying taxes 
on the rest of the land in which the cave is located. Therefore, he wants to unload the whole thing so that the tax responsibility is off of him and on Abraham's shoulders. So this is not a very gracious and generous deal. It looks like what a good guy. He's giving Abraham more than he asked for. He's giving him more taxes than he asked for is kind of what's happening over here. So take the whole package, he says, so I could be tax-free. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field. Now, what is the price of the field? It hasn't been stated yet. Abram says, look, my back is up against the wall. He has me. I have no bargaining power. I'm going to... Uh, uh, bury my wife in this land, in the land of Canaan. It's very important for reasons we'll discuss in a second. Therefore, whatever the price is I'm willing to pay, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. So this, is how it this happens like this in the Middle East. Oh, my good friend. Our friendship is worth so much more than a mere monetary exchange. A, a petty 400 shekels, he announces the price, 400 shekels of people, uh, 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 of silver for this land. Is that a good real estate buy? No. The Code of Hammurabi, for instance, records that a man's yearly wages on average were between six to eight shekels. So if you divide six into 400, I have no idea what you get. Really? Thomas, how'd you get that that quick? Wow. So how many years income would that be? No, not for you. To the guy who makes six shekels. <laughs> All right. You see how many years you got to work? That would be a bad... I mean, if you... You wouldn't buy a house for that. I mean, that, here's another deal. In Jeremiah 32, we find out Jeremiah paid only 17 shekels for a field. In 2 Samuel 24, we find out David paid 50 shekels for a threshing floor and the, and oxen were thrown in as well. So 400 shekels is not a good deal. Ephron knows he got this Jewish guy and he is ripping him off. And that's exactly what happens. And so it says, verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron. Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver. What do you mean weighed it out? Oh, you see, this is before coinage. They didn't have coins. Silver was weighed, and the weight was shekels. Today, if you go to Israel, you, it, they use the same name, shekels, but now it's for coins. Israeli shekels is the same name, taken from thousands and thousands of years ago. But in those days, it was a measure of weight. So he weighed out in shekels the silver, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field, and the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field. What's with the trees? According to Hittite law, you pay tax on each of the trees on the real estate. <laughs> That's how you do it. It's kind of like America. Anyway, uh, so, uh, yeah. 
and that were within all the confines of the they were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, you see it was publicly witnessed, before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, there it's said again. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. So we answer the question now, why was this so important for Abraham and for Jacob and for Joseph to obtain the burial site in the land of Canaan? Uh, Why was it so important for them to be buried there? In so doing, they're showing us their confidence in the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. God said to them, though you are now sojourners and foreigners in this particular land, it's the land I give to you and your descendants. God promised that to them way back in Genesis 12, reaffirmed it in many other chapters uh, thereafter. But they never came into full possession of the land. As you can see, Abraham has to negotiate, pay an exorbitant price just for a little burial site. And yet in saying, I want this as a burial site, they are essentially making a deposit of permanence in the land because God made them a promise of permanent possession of the land. And they have so grown in faith that they're saying, I'm not going to be buried in Haran. That's not our place. We're not going to be buried in Egypt. That's not the land of promise that God has graciously and freely promised us. And they're showing something else. They're saying something that would be helpful for us to know. Do you know most of God's promises to us are not meant to be fulfilled here? That just explains a lot to me. That explains why we go through what we go through. Most of God's biblical promises to us are not meant to be perfectly and completely fulfilled here. It's there that they get fulfilled. Therefore, you and I are sojourners in a place and in a land And we're trusting God for the fulfillment of all his promises in advance of them actually being fulfilled. We're essentially saying what these people said. There's a reality after death. These guys are saying, we're going to die and we want you to bury us in the land of Canaan. Because we believe after that will be the fulfillment of God's promise. That is our presence in the land. We are essentially saying the same thing. When we die as believers, as Christians, we've not come yet here into our full inheritance. I don't know if you knew this. This is not heaven. We get sick here. We die here. We lose jobs here. We get into accidents here. We get robbed here. We pay taxes here. You know, all that stuff. Isn't that very heavenly? Let me tell you this. When we die, we will die prior to the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And yet we know when we die, that doesn't have the final word. All that happens is our bodies are laid in the grave. There's a measure of permanence there. But the essence of us goes to be with the Lord, to be joined with glorified bodies, fit for eternity. And there we believe God will fulfill his eternal promise of a land of promise for us. That's called heaven. That's our heavenly abode. And 
And you're seeing in the Old Testament a hint at, at a New Testament reality. All of these patriarchs to whom the promise of literal land was made are essentially saying we so believe God for it that even though we die, we want to be placed in that land because it's that land in which God will fulfill his promises to our posterity. Can you see why Israel is a focal point of the world's attention, uh, attention and it will even get to be more? Because all that has to happen for the character of God to be uh, compromised is for Israel no longer to be in the land, for the Jews no longer to be in the land. See, see if somehow the Jews do not have a permanent presence in the land, then we could say to God, you broke your word. And if God broke his word to the Jews, then what confidence do you and I have that he'll keep his word about our place of promise? So what's at stake here has nothing to do with the Jews in the land. It has to do with the integrity of the God who put them in the land. If he can't keep them in the land, if they're annihilated, driven into the sea, exterminated, and there have been efforts at it, as you know, historically, and there'll be more. If those succeed, then we have to say to God, you're not a God of integrity. What you said you did not do. And if, if you broke your word to them, surely you will not keep your word to us. But folks, the miracle of Israel, and that's what it is, no people group in the history of humankind has been out of its homeland for thousands of years and then be reconstituted as a nation. No people group in the history of humankind. In May of 1948, it, uh, it happened in Israel. That has nothing to do with the Jews being so cool. It has to do with God being a God of integrity. Numbers 23:19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said... And will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not fulfill it? When I look to modern day Israel, I say, Oh God, you don't lie. Oh God, you have nothing to repent of. Oh God, you said it and you are fulfilling it. And oh God, if that's true, then I have assurance of my salvation. I know when I die and am buried, I'm going to be home with you. In my place of promise. That's where our citizenship is. And that's where the bulk of your promises will ultimately be fulfilled. Until then, we're just strangers and wanderers in this particular land doing the best we could. So, uh, Satan knows if I get rid of the Jews, I call into question the integrity of God. And that's what the problem in the Middle East is. That's what's going on. Get rid of the Jews. And you have just found evidence that God can't be trusted. And, and you would be quite foolish to trust him for your salvation if the Jews are not permanently in the land. So anyway, to me, that's what's at stake in the Middle East. And uh, there you go, Brother Chuck. I found a way to get Israel into the thing. Oh, did I say that? Oh, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. I meant to say the first man. Yeah, that's it. That's a ticket, yeah. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Chuck, for getting something out of the lesson today.
that's why you have to listen. Who knows what else I said that's not true. (laughs) So, Lord Jesus, thanks for everything. Thanks for what's been done. Thanks for what's being done. Thanks for what will be done. The best is yet to come. We believe you for it. You've given us evidence of it in our hearts, in history, in scripture. You keep your word. And because of that, we have confidence of our eternal resting place with you. Can't wait for it, Lord Jesus. In due season, we'll see you face to face. We look forward to it. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. See ya. Take Brother Chuck with you.